Galatians chapter 1, if you would. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. If you're not accustomed to bringing a Bible to church, I encourage you to do so. It is printed on the front of your bulletin, just in case you may not have had one when you left this morning, or it is possible that you would forget it on the way to church. And so I did put the first five verses on the front of the bulletin for you to look at. We'll be looking at together today. We began last week this series of expositions through the book of Galatians. And I told you last week with great excitement and anticipation how much I have learned already and have been blessed in my study and preparation for this particular book of the Bible. I have preached through the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of James, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And so we, every one of those that we have preached through here in uh, the last six years or so have been just a blessing and a privilege of mine. And I think they've been fruitful in the life of this church in many different ways. Some in ways that we did not think uh, the word would, uh, some of the results we did not anticipate the word producing. But I do, I do thank God for what he has done and what he is doing. Now, as we begin the book of Galatians, it is going to be our privilege to look at the gospel in almost every sermon. Even though I like to do that in every sermon anyway, sometimes it's more difficult if you're preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah. It's more challenging than it is, say, to preach uh, when you're preaching through one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. But what I want to do this morning very simply is just to read these first five verses with you. And then I'd like to pray with you and then we'll unpack them. So Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul an apostle. Not from men nor through man. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father who is in heaven. We praise you this morning. We want to. Praise you for who you are, the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of holiness and justice. We want to thank you today for gathering us in this place once and again. We want to thank you for letting us have the privilege of singing your word together and hearing it read in our presence. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have this morning of studying the book of Galatians. And our prayer as a church this morning is that you will do great and marvelous things far beyond anything that we could imagine or think. Lord, that you would reach down in this place from week to week as you let us live, Lord, and save souls and transform lives. That the Christians would be fed from your word by the power of your spirit as your word is exposited. So God, come and do what only you can do. And lift these words from the pages of a book. And so impress them upon our minds and hearts that we would forever be changed. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we had sort of a series overview or a book overview where we looked at the book kind of from the bird's eye view. We talked about the historical setting. We talked about uh, the recipients, even though I am going to mention that again today. And we, we thought about the main themes that are in the book of Galatians. And I want to bring them up just at the beginning so that we could just feel the effect of what is at stake in this book. And I believe it is at stake in every Christian generation. Namely, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout generations of church history, we have, we have learned that the gospel is always under attack. It was under attack in the first century with this new church. This was a new thing. Spreading out from Jerusalem and a small band of Jewish Christians now. It was a new thing culturally. It was a new thing among these various cities to which the gospel would find its way by the power of God and the missionary band. And so the gospel was at stake even in the first century. And we are going to pick up on this theme. It's one of the major themes in the book of Galatians. The true gospel. The true gospel. There's a lot of so-called gospels that are false gospels. And Paul, writing this letter, I believe, has solidified for us and for all time, through this authoritative word, what is the true gospel. And the true gospel is so important because lives and eternal life is at stake. If you get the gospel wrong, then people cannot be saved. Because the Bible says, for example, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so if we get, if we're preaching a false Christ and a false gospel, then people believe in a false Christ and a false gospel to their own eternal destruction. So it's a serious thing, isn't it? It's a serious thing in all generations, even in the first century that we get the gospel right. And if the gospel is at stake and if souls are at stake, and thirdly, we could say that the glory of God is at stake. The reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake. Is the work of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ full and sufficient to save those who will believe? Or is there something additional that needs to be done? Something additional that needs to be accomplished by the individual in order to make the work of the cross more effectual? That's what's at stake in the book. And if that's what's at stake in the book, in the letter, then we understand that the reputation of the triune God is at stake. Because there is no division among the Trinity. The Father has planned it. The Son came and accomplished the work of the Father, the will of the Father, and the Spirit applies it to the believer's life. And we have to see this, and we will see this as we look into the book of Galatians. Now, here's what I want to do. I'll give you the key. I'll hang the key on the front door. You'll know exactly where we're going. And that way, if you like to take notes, you'll have the outline. Three points. Number one. The writer in his apostolic authority. Secondly, the recipients of the letter. The recipients of the letter. The writer, the recipients. Thirdly, the message. 
the message of the letter. What we're going to see in just a few moments is that the very message of the book of Galatians is contained in the first five verses. And all he's going to do throughout the entirety of the book is to elaborate and draw out on these points. Mainly the first and the last. The writer in his apostolic authority, which he establishes in chapter 1 and 2. And the message, the true message of the gospel in chapters 3 and 4. And the practical application and outworking of those that are regenerate, those that are born again, those that are saved and truly justified in the sight of God but the power of the Holy Spirit in chapters 5 and 6. So you have really the message of the letter in a concise statement in the opening verses of this letter. So Paul kind of lets them know up front where he's going, as I've done with you in this message, and then he begins to elaborate throughout the letter on the very things that we see put down at the very beginning. So, number one, the writer and his apostolic authority. The writer and his apostolic authority. Paul's apostolic authority, because the writer is not in question. The writer is the apostle Paul. Now, we know this because he puts his name as the first word of the letter. Paul, an apostle. He's writing in verse 2 at the end there. It says, to the Galatian churches. So this is the apostle Paul. He says so after his name, Paul, an apostle. He's going to say this later on in the book, I, Paul. He wants them, there's no question, to understand who it is that is writing this particular letter. And I want to say a little bit about the Apostle Paul and his apostolic authority, not because I made that up, but because that's exactly what Paul wants to convey in this opening phrase. Paul, an apostle. He hangs that right on the front door. Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The authority of the Apostle Paul has been challenged. Essentially, we talked to you last week in the opening sermon about these people called the Judaizers. Those that were going around, as it were, following the Apostle Paul and his missionary team and And they were coming in just like wolves on the sheep and corrupting the truth that had already been preached to them. Paul comes in and preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God that saves those that believe. And these Judaizers come in and they say, no, 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 that won't do it. And in essence, what they're doing and what they did was they called into question the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. Now, how do we know that? Well, not only you can see it, he gives himself the title and he talks about, but he talks about where he received this apostleship, which we'll come to in a moment. But he not only talks about it there, he talks about it in other places in the book of Galatians as well. As I mentioned, then chapter 1 and chapter 2 is sort of consumed with him establishing the fact that he is an apostle of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore he has authority to speak to the churches of Galatia. Now let's, let's think about Paul for a moment. Most of you are familiar with him if you've been in the church for a while, but I want us to think sort of as a sub point number one under this, uh, the writer and his apostolic authority. I want us to think about Paul's miraculous conversion. Paul's miraculous conversion from legalism. So if you're a, if you're a note taker, that's 
Subpoint one under the main point. His miraculous conversion from legalism. Now, I want us to go back and look in chapter 1, and we're going to get a little bit of ahead of ourselves here, but it's okay. We'll come to this later on. But in verse 13 and following, we find this. So chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard, he's talking to the churches of Galatia now in this letter, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, see, he was, he was one of these, he was steeped, raised as a strict Jew. I was advancing, he says, in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This man was simply, absolutely consumed with passion for the traditions that had been handed down from the fathers In Judaism, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me. So there's two aspects of a a person's conversion and call set apart before I was born, called at some point in my lifetime by God, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So here he tells them about his miraculous conversion from legalism. And I think this is significant in understanding the book and significant in understanding the flow of thought and how he argues that he is in fact an apostle And he can speak authoritatively from Christ. But not only does he speak authoritatively from Christ, but he's going to speak out of personal experience. This book has a tone of a very personal nature. He, he's, he's actually angry at the, at the Galatian churches. He is writing and he's got a very pointed direction, which we'll see in a, in a little bit. But he's writing to address this situation that is happening among these churches. And he's very, very passionate about it. And he was miraculously converted from a life of strict legalism. If you go back to the book of Acts, and this is where I would have a tendency to linger maybe longer than what I should. But I think it's important. And maybe even if we don't get through, it'll be okay. I want you to turn back to the book of Acts chapter 8. And I want you to see this conversion. I want you to see it. You may not have read this in a while. This man was miraculously converted from a life of legalism. Now, you can be a legalist and not be and not be a Jew. You you can be a legalist and not be a part of Judaism. You can be a legalist anytime you set up rules and regulations and rituals in which you have to perform in order to be accepted by God in order to be saved. You become a legalist. He was definitely one, and we're going to see that. Look, if you will, in chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen, who had just been killed, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Listen to this. But Saul 
was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a violent persecution of the church. And Paul does it because he is so, remember what he said that we read there in the book of Galatians 13, chapter 1, 13 and following. He was so zealous for the traditions of the Father, that he violently would come into someone's home. You can picture it today as the as the police officers come to the door of a criminal and they take the battering ram and they just bust in the door and go in and drag the individual out and haul them off to prison. This is the picture of what Paul was doing to the church. Now, folks, you do that when you think you are absolutely right. You do something like that when you think that these people, uh, these Christian people are violating the reputation of God in the world. They're violating and maligning the reputation of God. They are destroying the traditions of the fathers. And this can't happen, so we've got to stamp it out by violent action. If you look over in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, now this is a little bit of a long one, so you'll have to... Bear with me now. That's why it's good for you to bring a Bible so you can read along. But if you didn't, just just listen. This is a story of the miraculous conversion right here. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Why? So that if he found any belonging to the way that is Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, This is how you save somebody that's blind in legalism. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus, in other words a Christian, named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Very important phrase. God chose Paul, not the other way around. Paul is a, is, is a sent man apostle from God. Before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. 
Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, it goes on to say, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here we read the story of the man, Saul, who we know to be Paul the Apostle, who was miraculously rescued on the way to persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's significant when he writes the book. And you'll see, if you go home and read it, it won't take you 15 minutes to read the entire book. And you'll, you'll, you'll understand so much more of why this is significant, I think, to study. Paul doesn't just stop there in mentioning what happened to him. If you turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll find another place that he talks about it. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 and following. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. He's writing to Timothy. This is what he says. I, Timothy's this apostolic delegate at the church at Ephesus at the time. He says, I thank him who strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. And there again, what is he saying? My authority comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who called him. Jesus Christ is the one who appointed him for this service. He says in verse 13, though, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorant, ignorantly in unbelief. He fully believed he was right, even though he was wrong. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. Why? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just breaks out, understanding his conversion, understanding the road that he was on and the destination that he was headed toward. And when he recounts this story about how God miraculously saved him, he can't help it in verse 17 to break out in a doxology of praise. And he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't help it when he thinks about how miraculously and powerfully God called him out of sin, out of darkness, out of lostness, out of deadness to life and sight and peace and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one more place that I shared with you last week that I think it was last week. It might have been last Sunday night because I talked about it there as well. That I think is definitely worthy of our reading. And that is the book of Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. We're still thinking about his miraculous conversion. And he talks about it here in such pointed terms. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. He's going to be talking about these Judaizers, by the way. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Talking about those, he even says it, talks about circumcision. For we, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So your circumcision and your adherence to the outward external law that was given to Israel by God, he says, means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why? He tells us. Circumcised on the eighth day. Check. Of the people of Israel. Check. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Check. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. The conversion of Saul, the conversion of Paul, is not only one from darkness to light. It's not only one from spiritual death to spiritual life. But it's one of profound and zealous legalism to freedom in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Remember in Galatians, he said, I was profiting above many my own age in this tradition of the fathers. But here he says in verse 7, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. The Apostle Paul was converted from a lifetime of legalism to Judaism. So, second, not second main point, second sub-point. Paul's apostolic authority is first established in the fact of his miraculous conversion. Secondly, his apostleship itself. Go back to Galatians 1. Galatians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle, an apostle. And he's going to pick up on this again. Galatians 1, 10 to 12. Galatians 4, 13 and 14. Galatians 5, 2. Galatians 6, 17. His apostleship has to be established. And we're going to, we're going to learn why here in just a moment. Because to be an apostle, you had to meet two, at least two requirements. Number one, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Secondly. You had to be appointed personally by Jesus himself. So there, there are no modern day apostles today. Not in this sense. There were only 12 plus Paul. Who he says of himself was born, born out of due season. And so the word apostle itself in its broadest and simplest sense. Means someone who is sent. Someone who is Sent like an ambassador who is sent with a message or in the authority of the person who sends them. So in the broadest sense, you can imagine someone being sent out by a king to a foreign 
uh, nation to say, listen, this is the terms of peace, take it or leave it. Now, would that ambassador have any right to, to change or modify the message? Absolutely not. He is only there as a representative of the king himself. This is the general sense of the word apostle, one who is sent. But I shared with you that in order to be an apostle in the sense that Paul is using this term, and then the sense of the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, and James, and all of the twelve that are mentioned in the book of Luke, you can, you had to be a personal witness to the resurrected Christ and be personally appointed to this particular office of authority in the life of the church. And that's why we're talk, talking about his apostolic authority. So let's look at that. In the book of Luke, chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 13, is where you find this. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 says, In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is Jesus. And what happens after that? And uh, when day came, he called his disciples and chose, do you see that word? And chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Whom he named what? Apostles. So he chose them after spending a night in prayer. And then he gives their names. But among those names, you won't see the name Saul or the name Paul. Because he wasn't there at that time. This is before his conversion. This is before he is miraculously saved from his life of Judaism and legalism. He wasn't there. But Paul was, as we learn from Acts chapter 9. He was a recipient of direct revelation from the resurrected Christ. And he was personally appointed by Christ to take the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. As we learned from Galatians chapter 2. Now why is this important? That we, that Paul establishes in these opening verses and really in the first two chapters, his apostolic authority. Why is that important? Number one. Because the apostles were given authority by Christ to speak and act on his behalf. That's significant. It's important to understand that Paul has apostolic authority because the apostles were invested by Christ with this authority to speak and to act on his behalf. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, you can just write this down if you would. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Listen to what it says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here it is. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the church, Paul says, are the apostles. And when we studied that verse some time back, we learned that what that means is that the teaching of the apostles is the foundation of the church. It's the reason that Jesus said in Matthew 16 to the apostle Peter, when he rightly understood the true identity of Jesus, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so upon the authority of the apostles, which is has been given to them by Jesus himself to establish the true and the right doctrine or teaching of the Christian church. And that's the second thing. 
The reason it's important is because the apostles were given authority to establish the doctrine of the Christian church. What the Christian church teaches today should be in direct alignment with what the apostles first taught in the first century because it was to them that Christ himself gave the authority to do so. We find that, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. Talking about the early church right after Pentecost, it says, And they, the Christians, devoted themselves. They remained, the King James says, they remained steadfastly. They devoted themselves to the, what's the first thing? To the apostles' doctrine. Or, you know the word doctrine means teaching, right? To the apostles' teaching. The early church was completely and utterly devoted, steadfastly continuing in, the apostles' teaching. Why? why? Why not somebody else? Why not a few of the other brothers in the church or sisters in the church? Why were they steadfastly devoted and committed to the apostles' teaching? Because it was to them that Christ himself had invested the authority to establish the, the, the authoritative teaching of the Christian church. And so the reason that Paul says, if you look back at, at our text now... He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Listen to this in verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me. (laughs) Why does he add that? Well, one of the reasons is, I think, because he wants us and them to recognize that there are other people who are with him. There are other people who understand what he teaches and are on board with that. And secondly, I think it serves to uh, differentiate between the Apostle Paul and the other brothers. So the reason that Paul doesn't say in the opening greeting, me and the brothers, he could have said that, right? He's a brother in Christ. He could have said, hey, me and the brothers over here at so-and-so to the churches at Galatia. But he doesn't. He says, Paul slash an apostle Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. The reason, I think, is because he wants them to understand the authority the Lord Jesus Christ had given to him as one of the apostles whom he had personally appointed to establish true and right doctrine among the churches. Now, why is that important? Because in this book, he is going to argue Against false doctrine. His name and his reputation as an apostle has been maligned among these churches. And now you've got people within the church, within the Christian church, who are considering or maybe even trying to go back and practice the Mosaic law in order to be saved and teaching other people that this is what you have to do. And Paul is writing to correct this error. This is a doctrinal book. And he needs to establish his apostolic authority in order for that to be heard. (laughs) In other words, these guys that are going around and telling you this mess are not apostles. I am, he says. I am one. So he goes on, as we read in verse 1, to say that his authority was not from men. It's not through man, but but from who? Jesus Christ 
and God the Father who raised him from the dead. His authority to speak and to establish the true gospel among all the churches of Galatia and the surrounding area and any church that he walked into was the authority of Jesus and of God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. If you look back at the book of Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping, this is in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, quote, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The authority for the Apostle Paul was not from men. It was from God. His apostleship, therefore, is divine. Divine. As we go on, I mentioned you all of those verses. Chapter 2, he goes on into chapter 2 throughout the entire chapter to defend his right to authoritatively speak to these churches. And so that's why... I emphasize it because he emphasizes it even in the first verse. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, what is the implication of that for us today? Why is this significant for us? Because I said to you that in every generation of Christians, the gospel is challenged by the false teachers. In every generation. In every generation, including the one we're living in, it was because the gospel was attacked that we went through a huge period of time, over a thousand years of darkness until the Protestant Reformation, 1500. It's, it's at stake in every generation. And so what is the authority? <laughs> what, is, what is the authority of the New Testament church today? What do we look to as objective truth to say, here it is, this is the line, this is the standard, this is the message. We look right back to the Apostle Paul and what he wrote to the Galatian church, churches, what he wrote to the church at Philippi, what he church, what, what he wrote to those Christians at Colossia, what he wrote, did I say Ephesus already? He's got 13 of them in the New Testament. And when he picks up pen to write, the apostle Peter confirmed it in his letter. When he picks up the pen to write, he is an apostle, not from men, not from man, but from the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the founder and the purchaser of the church and the father who raised him powerfully from the dead. Gives him the authority to write. Gives him the authority to establish. Not only for the first century church. Including the churches of Galatia. But for the rest of this world. And this church age. The authority is invested in these books. So that you can know. What is the true gospel. Apart from the lies Okay, the recipients of the letter, I'll let you off the hook. You can go back and listen to last week. There's four churches. I held up eight, didn't I? There's four churches that Paul establishes in the book of Acts 13, 14. You can go back and read those about those that first missionary journey and how he established those churches. Modern day Turkey, they're descendants of the Gauls and uh, he goes, he preaches the gospel. The church is established and guess what? 
false doctrine comes in almost immediately. And he has to defend it. Well, I'm going to give myself an out there because to me, an equal amount of time, if not more, needs to be given to that third point, the message of the letter. I wish I could have got it, but I didn't. The message of the letter is, is, is so significant and important that I want to, I'll save that for next week. He hangs the key on the front of the door and he elaborates chapter three and four. I can't wait to get to chapter three and four so that we can, we can just see what is the true gospel. And, uh, and, and we'll just, we'll just rejoice. I, I trust. We'll just rejoice in the truth and it'll be so great. I want to say, in closing, that what you and I do in our Christian in, in our lives, what the way we perform, you know, be a good person, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, can never save you. Okay, can never save you. Only Jesus can save you. And the only way that, and the thing that that, that is required of us. When the good news goes out, and I mean it is gloriously good, of the grace of God that acted in Christ to save sinners when he went to the cross and died and arose from the grave and sent the apostles and the gospel out into the world. And it says at the end of it, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative for all time. Oh God, we just can't, we can't thank you enough that we have objective truth in our hands this morning. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to question. We don't have to scratch our heads. And thank you, God, that we are not left to our individual subjective opinion. We can look into the very teachings of the apostles, the teaching that you gave them. So that we can know for all time what is the truth. And even in many places like the book of Galatians, we can find out what some of the errors are. What some of the false teachings that often crop up in church history are. We can be aware of them. We can spot them more clearly, accurately, swiftly. And we can turn from them and we can hold up the truth to an onlooking world. And to a church that needs so desperately to be fed and to be nourished on the truth that you've given in your word. So we praise you this morning. If there's one here today that needs to just turn away from sin right now. Just turn away from sin and trust in the resurrected Christ. God, we're asking you to move in such a way. To draw in such a way. To call in such a way that they would come. And we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.